Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning. Thank you for joining me for another exciting episode of New Book Network's African American Studies podcast. I am your host, Katrina Anderson. Today, I am joined by Professor Rebecca Fraser, who is an Associate Professor of History and Culture in the School of Art, Media, and American Studies at the University of East Anglia. Her research is primarily concerned with the ways in which discourses of gender, race, and sexuality were articulated and interacted in the context of 19th century America. She has published three books, her first in 2007, Courtship and Love Among the Enslaved in North Carolina, was based on her PhD dissertation and explored the emotional lives of enslaved couples in antebellum North Carolina. In 2012, she published Gender, Race, and Family in 19th Century America, From Northern Woman to Plantation Mistress, which focused on Sarah Hicks Williams, a middle-class woman born and raised in New Hartford, New York, who in 1853 married Benjamin Williams, a physician and slaveholder from Greene County, North Carolina. Sarah Williams assumed the role of plantation mistress to 37 or so enslaved people there. Today, we will be discussing her third book, Born to Born to Bloom Unseen, Black Female Intellectuals in Early 19th Century America, which is published by Rutledge in December of 2022. Dr. Frazier, thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here as well and talk to your um, audience about this book. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yes, yeah, so um, the book um, focuses on questions of why black women are not typically understood to be central to the intellectual cultures of the United States um, and considers women who we should recognise under that rather kind of hallowed term of the intellectual, even though they've, um, they've not been so um, uh, as such. Um, and so, um, and even if um, black women are included in um, the term intellectual, it's really something that historically has occurred um, in the 20th century. Um, so, um, so, or the later 19th century. So you've got Ida B. Wells, um, then um, onwards. Um, so, um, but the women who feature in Born to Bloom Unseen um, are 19th century women, uh, black women, um, some of them are um, born free, um, so into um, uh, families that are either free born or have emancipated themselves um, from um, slavery. Um, and they were born generally into the black middle classes, um, although several still undertook um, sort of paid work in roles like domestic service and um, teaching. Others that I focused on were enslaved. Um, um, several were illiterate because of that, it being you know illegal to teach enslaved peoples to read and write in various southern states. So um, these enslaved women either emancipated themselves legally or otherwise, um, and um, or remained in, enslaved until slavery was abolished in the US um, at the end of the Civil War in 1865. And so, and these 
because of these differences in their backgrounds, their intellectual labours varied massively and often took on um, multiple roles that were grounded in an intellectual work, including activism, writing for or to the black press, editing newspapers, artistry and creative work or education. And, and that's really, you know, sort of um, uh, um, what, um, what, what the, the book sets out to do, look at some of these women's lives, some of these women's experiences, but also their kind of intellectual contribution to um, 19th century intellectual cultures. How did you become interest, interested in the topic? <laughs> so this started life as a project on collective memories of enslavement, but particularly um, uh, women's collective memories of enslavement. Women, you know, are very often seen as the the person who, you know, sort of um, recalls um, particular um, moments in one's family history. Um, I'm sure you've had that experience. I certainly have with my own mother and my grandmother. Um, and so... Um, uh, so this this really started um, on a path that was quite different to the one that it eventually took. Um, and then I came across some of the artists that I focus on, particularly Edmonia Lewis, um, the um, biracial um, uh, um, sculptor, um, and some of her pieces, which just, you know, sort of blew me away. Um, and, um, and then I began to find out more and more and more about particular women who had never been termed as an intellectual, but actually they were doing intellectual work. And so I think that's how it kind of started and evolved. But I think also a central part of my intellectual journey since the doctorate years in the early 2000s is uh, the need to recover marginalised voices. Um, and, um, and as anybody who does um, research into enslaved peoples anywhere um, in uh, the, the modern world, I suppose, um, from, you know, sort of the uh, 1800s onwards, um, uh, we'll, we'll know about the silences of the archives. Um, and all but one of the women I focus on has no archive of their own, you know, no, you know, sort of um, uh, um, uh, W. Boy Du Bois archive or, um, you know, sort of... Uh, um, it's very much they're hidden in plain sight and the historian is largely left to kind of reconstruct their lives and their intellectual work from scattered references in the papers of others. So I found many of my um, uh, archival sort of letters, etc., cetera, um, in um, papers that belong to um, male um, abolitionists. Um, so um, so it was, uh, it was a really interesting exercise in why are these women so marginalised in, in these histories and do not have archives of their own. Um, and I think another um, element to my kind of intellectual journey are questions of how people resisted their oppression in the context of 19th century America. I'm an Americanist. Um, particularly um, uh, black people, um, enslaved and free, and the the home places they used to do that. So I'm particularly interested in family, family life as an institution that helps support um, uh, black people through um, the experiences of the 19th century. I'm also interested in um, the black church and community, um, particularly within enslavement and the ways in which um, community sheltered um, uh, um, individuals from some of the the, the oppression and the, and the um, 
and the harshness of the experiences um, they went through. Um, thinking about questions of power and privilege and talking truth to power also interests me. And they're the kind of key drivers um, for um, uh, for my research over the years. So, um, uh, and my previous two books, as you mentioned, um, uh, Katrina, in the intro, um, focused on the cultural lives of both the enslaved and the enslaver, respectively. And during the research for these two books, I noticed that there were several black women who featured in the archives as glimpses, right? So passing through the archival records of others, um, whether that be white or black men or white women, um, so, and I'm working in American studies for the past 17 years or so, I was kind of well equipped um, in a kind of methodological sense um, to begin unearthing sources about these women in really unexpected places through things like poems, novels, artistry, their creative works, letters to editors. Um, So, and I think while some women were perhaps a little more well-known in the archives as abolitionists or women's rights campaigners, others were hardly acknowledged um, outside of their own families and personal networks. And it was really, really fascinating to begin thinking about them as intellectuals and consider how much more impactful their work might have been if they'd been considered as um, doing intellectual labour at that time or even you know sort of since um so uh, so yeah it's uh, um it's been a kind of long and um interesting journey for me um throughout my intellectual career but here i am uh, um uh, um after 10 years of, of writing this book uh, um finally getting it out there in the world and hoping it makes a, a difference to how people think about um what intellectuals do and what intellectuals are Why do you think the experiences of Black women intellectuals have been relegated to the margins of history? And I know part of that has to do with that archival issue for the Um, most part. No, absolutely. Um, Because, you know, sort of they're invisible in the archives. um, And um, uh, Marissa J. Fiontes, um, uh, um, brilliant, brilliant historian of of slavery, um, uh, suggests that, you know, sort of we have to kind of read with the grain we read you know sort of not only the silences but read with the grain and you know sort of work out what's what's going on in you know sort of sources that don't directly talk to the enslaved experience um and are voiced by the enslaved themselves particularly women um also you know sort of these women did not leave um uh, documented records. Um, many of them, as I said, couldn't read or write. Um, they were illiterate. Um, so um, the only way they had to pass on their stories was through orality. Um, and uh, um, But I also think that um, these women have been marginalised in the kind of histories that I'm, I'm focusing on in this book because they mostly did their thinking outside of the academy, right? So this was especially so in the early and mid-19th century when black women were prohibited, um, usually by law, religious ideals, um, uh, um, and such like, um, uh, based on both patriarchal and racial privileges from entering spaces, which we might think of as where the intellectual resides. So I'm talking about universities, lecture halls, public platforms of moral reform campaigns like abolition or women's rights. They were usually seen as, as the activist rather than the intellectual. Um, and uh, um, so, but if we think 
beyond that kind of static definition of what we mean by this hallowed term of the intellectual and begin to look instead in the private and domestic spaces of places like parlours or kitchens or the correspondence between friends or the artist workshop or um, uh, um, uh, the um, uh, black newspapers and letters to the editor of these um, uh, uh, of these newspapers, we can begin to build up a highly engaging, I think, and fascinating insight into the intellectual labours of, of black women, and you know, sort of how they process um, those um, those those thoughts and and how they developed their thoughts as as time went on. You know, it's so interesting because, you know, it's kind of reconceptualing your ideas about who Black women were during the 19th century, during this period. Mm-hmm. Now, your book is thematically organized. What are some of the major themes that are covered in the book? So, um, in terms of, I think, sort of themes that I would directly um, talk to, um, ideas around um, uh, what, I, what I've called Christian uh, citizenship divas, this idea of performance, um, and I've borrowed that term from Lauren Berlant, um, a, um, a, a literary and, and cultural theorist, um, and, uh, um, and the idea of um, the ways in which um, black women claimed citizenship, even though they didn't have it, they didn't have an entitlement to citizenship, right? Um, and, and the ways in which they um, performed this citizenship through, you know, sort of uh, um, uh, reclaiming their rights to speak in public, um, reclaiming their right to create art that spoke to um, particular um, concerns and issues, um, um, that um, uh, black people had in the United States. So that's certainly one theme. Um, I also write an awful lot about literary activism. Um, so whether that's through um, um, novels that um, these black women um, were, um, were, were were writing or alternatively um, the um, the letters um, to the editor um, of um, black uh, black newspapers, such as the Christian Recorder, um, essays that, that that women black women were submitting to to these particular um, uh, newspapers. Um, so um, so yeah, I think literary activism, and we don't often think about um, well, certainly um, in you know sort of history, um, we don't often think about literary activism enough. Um, it's something that, you know, sort of um, literature scholars think about um, an awful lot more. And um, and then I'd also um, point to this idea of creativity. Um, so I've, I've mentioned a couple, uh, Edmonia um, uh, Lewis, um, but um, uh, there was also Harriet Powers. Um, she was an enslaved, um, formerly enslaved quilt artist. Um, and she, uh, um, she, she's enslaved until sort of emancipation in, in 1865 and the 13th Amendment. Um, and she only begins to exhibit um, her quilts um, in the later sort of 1880s and 1890s. Um, and, um, but this idea of quiet activism, 
so she's not well known at all um you know sort of only if you're a specialist in visual culture in the united states and in united states history or you know you're interested in creativity um in terms of of artistry of of black americans you might know of her but this idea of quiet activism so she's you know sort of uh, she's just you know sort of um uh getting on with you know sort of creating these beautiful beautiful um pieces of artwork i mean they're just it takes so much skill to to create a quilt i can't quilt at all um and uh it's um i just there's a, there's a science to quilting um in terms of having to piece together sort of uh, um geometric squares and you know and the the, the quilts that that she creates um are 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 biblical quilts um a, a couple of them are, are biblical quilts and then there's there's a, a story quilt as well um and um the skill the talent is just unbelievable so um so yeah thinking about creativity and the way in which um these um black women demonstrate their intellectual abilities through creativity i'd also talk or point to um black nationalism as another theme i found this chapter quite uh, particularly difficult to write um, uh, um, uh, because I started not knowing very much about black nationalism, uh, thinking that it was something that was, you know, in the 20th century. And um, But then when I began to kind of research more and more and hear the words of these women, I was more, well, actually, um, you are talking about um, uh, something around um, sort of um, a, a black nation and, uh, and such like. So, um, so um so yeah we i sort of focus on black nationalism as another theme and then lastly but definitely not um least is education um so racial uplift um and education and all of these women um throughout their lifetimes um have you know sort of uh, um a focus on racial uplift um through education um all of them without exception yeah your themes were marvelously done and so intertwined is as you were reading one chapter it segued so nicely into the next chapter and so as we're talking you know you've alluded to some of these women of course there as you mentioned some um there were both well-known and lesser-known figures that you covered in your book and some of the well-knowns definitely um Frances Ellis Watkins Harper, Harriet Tubman, Truth. And you spoke about Powell and quilting a few moments ago. And as you were saying that, I, it made me remember, you're correct, quilting is a very difficult process. And it's not something I can do. But my great-grandmother, great-great-grandmother, I actually have one of her quilts. My mom gave it to me. And it is so nicely stitched and done. It's like this work of art that... <laughs> There's no way I can ever replicate that. Absolutely, but also, you know, sort of, um, uh, my um, uh, my husband's um, grandma, she could quilt, and she produced these beautiful, beautiful quilts. But they were for everyday use. They were to keep keep one warm, or you know, sort of. They weren't for a decorative purpose. Um, so this notion of everyday use, and I, Alice Walker um, uh, writes an awful lot about, you know, sort of the everyday use of of quilts. Um, but the ways in which we can um, sort of think about them actually as 
as beyond that. And, and Powers actually exhibits her quilts and they win prizes. Um, and, and they're actually um, a white patron, Jenny Smith, falls in love with one of the quilts um, and tries to buy it from uh, Harriet Powers. And Harriet Powers refuses. Um, and um, but it's only it's a couple of years later when um, her and her husband are you know sort of deep in in poverty and they decide to he convinces her to um, to sell the quilt to um, to to Jenny Smith. Um, so for I think it's um, five dollars and enough calico um, that she can create you know sort of some more. Um, so um, so yeah, I mean sort of. Uh, um, five dollars is nothing in comparison to what it's probably worth today so um so yeah but even um even her white patrons have you know sort of particular um uh, um what i would say are um you know sort of um, racialized views of this poor um black woman who you know sort of creates quilts just you know sort of um uh, and you know is a homely type um woman uh, according to to them so you know sort of uh, um uh, and in their descriptions of of powers herself um uh, they are they are bordering on you know sort of uh, um quite um uh, racist descriptions i mean given you know, the time and it, it's you know all to be put in context but yeah so um but yeah quilting is um <laughs> just it's it's just a feat um to be able to you know sort of uh, um develop um develop that 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 those beautiful um uh, sheets that um that just say so much i agree i definitely agree with that statement in the book and we're going to speak uh, now a little bit about some of those more well-known figures uh-huh. um unlike powell's we are talking about marianne chad carey um, Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth, you note that they used bodily performances to engage in what you call oppositional politics to the white patriarchal order. How were they able to accomplish this? Yeah, so um, so I mentioned earlier about um, uh, um, this notion of diva citizenship, um, which um, uh, um, Lauren Ballant um sort of uses um and uh, um and so sort of from truth having the the courage so sojourn of truth she's standing um up in a a, a pro um uh, um in a in, a, in an anti-slavery um uh, um uh, convention um and um, she's in front of an indiana audience uh, uh, um uh, and um, and many, men, many of her audience are, are pro-slavery Democrats. Um, and they accuse her of being a man. She, her voice is too deep um, to be uh, a woman. Um, you know, sort of she's got too much intellect to be a woman. Um, so, um, so she says, um, I'm going to prove my womanhood um, by disrobing, you know, so she, everyone can see her breasts. And um, and they suggest, well, actually, you know, sort of, it, it's not really polite to, you know, sort of disrobe in front of, of of men. So what about if we, you know, sort of ask the women in the room to look? And she says, no, she insists actually that, um, you know, if if you have the gall to suggest that that I am not a woman, then you know, sort of see see I am a woman, and you'll you'll have to, you know, um, uh, um, uh, sort of 
cope with, you know, sort of the, 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 the kind of consequences of that. Um, so, um, and the courage it must have taken her to, I mean, Susan of Truth, you know, over six feet tall, you know, sort of just a, a, an absolute um, um, powerhouse of, of a woman formidable um uh, both in in stature but also in in terms of her kind of intellectual capacities um uh this notion of using her body um to um to to kind of um uh, refuse um the patriarchal and sort of racist and, and racialized discourses of 19th century america for me, were really, really interesting. I'd never heard that story before, and um, I mean, I've, I've, I mean, I teach slavery, uh, teach slavery in the US um, as, as a as a module, and have done so for for several years, and um, and I thought that you know, sort of, I um, I knew several of these um, women who were um, black abolitionists very quite well, um, and uh, um, so um, so yeah, I I was just you know, sort of uh, um, quite overwhelmed by um this um this this moment um and then um in comparison to um truth's um act of of diva citizenship we have uh, francis ellen watkins harper who um carla peterson um a historian um eminent eminent historian um uh, um describes as having a quiet body um, uh, on the podium. So um, uh, Grace Greenwood, a um, white um, uh, newspaper um, uh, editor, I think, or reporter, um, uh, describes her as a, as a noble muse. Um, and, you know, sort of, and, uh, um, and she speaks with such grace and she doesn't even need notes. And, and, um, and but this to me is also an example of a diva act of citizenship um so they kind of and what i mean by a diva act of citizenship is they they both re-narrate the dominant history as one that has been lived in the 19th century by their people but then they refuse it and they challenge their audience to identify with that kind of enormity of suffering they they narrate and calling out people to kind of challenge and, and change the social and institutional practices um, to which they've been subject to and to which actually white people have consented to. So, um, and I think Marianne Shakeri, Harriet Tubman did the same, but in different ways. So um, Shakeri largely through her newspaper and role as a teacher. And Tubman um, is a really interesting character. Um, I learned so much about Harriet Tubman um, through through this um, through my research and, and my writing, um, uh, but Tubman through her use of disguise um, on her trips to um, uh, back to Maryland to aid aid fugitive enslaved peoples back to freedom, but also in the ways in which um, whenever um, a newspaper report was published, um, uh, they would call her um, uh, um, Mrs. Garrison to hide her, you know, identity as, um, as Harriet um, uh, Tubman. Um, and her work on the um, Underground Railroad, um, uh, aiding fugitive enslaved peoples through to um, safe passage, through to um, uh, freedom. So, you know, sort of the ways in which um, they, um, they refute, they refuse um, these um, systems of, of, of white patriarchal rule. 
are, um, you know, sort of, uh, they were, um, they were not just in, interesting to me, they were really a revelation as to how these women um, use their bodies um, in ways that I sort of, when I, when I began to think about it, I thought this is, this is really interesting, primarily because I was so used to thinking about enslaved women, particularly um, in terms of the ways their bodies were violated. But, in, but these women used their bodies in ways that demonstrated their strength, in ways that demonstrated, you know, sort of um, their refusal to counter, to, to, to bow to um, patriarchal, racialized um, uh, uh, um, practices um, and ways of, you know, sort of ways the nation um, was, was constructed. Well, you know, it's so interesting as you are speaking about these women, you know, one of the things that you did very well in your book was talk about how these women were sending messages to Black Americans during this time. Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. So um, I think, you know, sort of from uh, Maria W. Stewart onwards, and Maria W. Stewart um, lectures for a very brief period of time in Boston, um, uh, in the early 1830s, and she's talking to, to biracial audiences, um, so um, uh, black as well as white. Boston is a hive of, you know, sort of abolitionist uh, um, uh, um, activity at this point in time, uh, and uh, um, and I think um, in in many ways they talk out of both sides of their mouth. Um, so um, uh, so thinking about the ways in which they're saying, you know, sort of they're saying one thing, but white people are drawing different meanings to black people from what they are saying. Um, and so um, and I think um, thinking about um, the ways in which they talked about the injustices of slavery and racial prejudices that not just not not just that they were subject to but actually you know sort of um um all all black people um uh, across across the us um but they did this in their own unique ways and perhaps not always or even typically at a lectern on, or on a platform delivering their thoughts it was you know sort of through um letters to the editor of the christian recorder and you know sort of and not everyone was reading the christian recorder or black newspapers at this point in time, but there was enough um, uh, readership of these um, particular publications um, to be able to, to kind of get their messages um, through to um, particularly black people. I mean, white people did read news, uh, newspapers um, such as the Christian Recorder, but it was mo- mainly um, the audience was, the readership, sorry, was um, uh, um, were, were, were black people. Um, and, uh, and these... Um, uh, these black newspapers would be um, maybe even if um, uh, one person subscribed to it, they would be, you know, read aloud around the family, you know, sort of uh, um, uh, table or alternatively in churches um, and other sort of venues. So it's um, it's a thing that, you know, sort of um, they were very um, conscious of, of, of sending messages to um, to Black Americans in in a variety of ways and and different means and often that was difficult right because you know these women were not just um, Black people they were women as well which you know sort of 
uh, um, which held out all sorts of um, particular, you know, sort of um, dangers for them in terms of not just um, racial harassment um, and, and prejudice, but also um, uh, sexual harassment and uh, um, and such like. So, um, and sexual violence. Um, so, um, so it wasn't always easy, and you know, sort of. I think, um, uh, um, but it was vital for them. Um, uh, to, to do that work. Well, you know, it's fascinating as, you know, they actually risk their lives um, on a daily basis to accomplish what they did. And we have so much to be, you know, thankful for the sacrifices that they were willing to make and the risks that they undertook um, during, you know, this period in history where, as you say, there was a threat of physical violence, sexual violence that was against them. And there's one particular young lady I'm thinking of right now, um, Edmona Lewis, who she's such a fascinating figure because, you know, she's, and I want to ask you like about how did her heritage impact her life and her interest into this so-called, excuse me, world of high art? Yeah, so, um, I mean, as I said in the opening um, few um, uh, um, minutes, um, Edmonia Lewis um, sort of kick-started this project for me, really. I sort of saw some of her work, um, uh, did a sort of paper on Edmonia Lewis and, and, and some of her work, which, you know, related to um, her, her forever of... Um, uh, Forever Free um, piece in um, 1867. Now you're testing me. Um, I think that's the date. Um, I'm sure you'll get lots of you know callers saying no. Actually, that wasn't. Um, but um, so Lewis was a sculptor of dual Indigenous and African descent. You know, sort of. She was working in the mid 19th century through the 1880s. Um, and I think, um, so she was orphaned at a very young age. Um, uh, so her mother died um, when she was about um, uh, seven, I think. Um, um, and um, her father, um, we don't hear too much about, um, uh, but um, he, he also passed. Um, so she's raised by her brother. And her brother is... Um, canny enough really um to um uh, make sure that edmonia gets an education um so um so he sends her to the day school in mcgraw um and uh, um i did not know before um i started this project that mcgraw was you know sort of this kind of hotbed of of abolitionist kind of um activity and you know sort of uh, many many um people there were um you know sort of uh, um uh, uh, interested in um, abolitionist um, sentiment and also um, uh, um, women's rights and the moral reform movement. So um, so it, she was, you know, sort of already being kind of cultured into, you know, sort of these kinds of ideas and ideals. Um, and then um, he, um, her, her brother, um, elects to send her to Oberlin, um, which um, in Ohio, um, she has, um, I mean, she has experiences that are wonderful for a, a biracial um, woman um, of her age in that period. However, um, she's also um, accused of poisoning um, and um, poisoning two other um, 
female students. Um, and um, before the trial begins, um, she um, she is um, dragged out of her her bed um, in the middle of the night um, and um, beaten within an inch of her life um, in uh, um, uh, in a field nearby. Um, there is no mention of, of sexual violence. We don't know um, whether she was raped as well. Um, and Oberlin doesn't, Oberlin dismisses her, um, you know, sort of the trial um, collapses and there is no evidence. Um, and, uh, um, but Oberlin um, says, you can't come back. Um, so not to be disheartened, um, uh, um, Lewis, um, uh, begins um, developing, you know, sort of relationships with white patrons. Um, she, um, uh, Lydia Maria Child, the um, white um, female abolitionist, um, uh, um, is one of her patrons. Um, she's She writes numerous letters to, um, uh, um, uh, so Lydia Maria Childs writes numerous letters about Edmonia Lewis, um, uh, not to Edmonia Lewis, um, but about her, um, quite dismissive of her work. Um, and dismissive of her character and dismissive of um, she she talks a lot about racial traits um, and, you know, sort of uh, uh, um, uh, the idea that, you know, so we should hardly be surprised that Edmonia Lewis's work is not up to scratch because um, of her, you know, sort of uh, um, being raised among um, uh, um, uh, indigenous peoples um and you know sort of she could hardly be expected to 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 be educated so you know so she's the really she's really dismissive of of, of several of her works she moves to rome um uh, and uh, um gains an, a workshop in rome uh, and with um another a group of of women really who migrate to rome and they're all creatives and artists and uh, um and such like um and uh, um, and they write back um home uh, to the united states about edmonia lewis and about how curious she is and uh, um and how she um i think one of the letters um describes her as petulant um and uh, i think you know sort of they very much they find her a um a peculiarity because of her her status, because of her racial status, because of her off, you know, sort of she's quite um, indifferent to them, um, and they can't work out why. Um, but she pursues her own ambitions. Um, she's um, uh, she's dismissive of Lydia Maria Child when she tells her to, you know, sort of um, uh, um, work in one way or work with um, uh, um, uh, um, don't work with plaster. Um, uh, because, you know, sort of you're not that talented. Um, she says this to her. Um, so, um, and she just, um, she goes her own way um, and, uh, and she creates some of the most beautiful pieces. But some of those pieces are, are lost um, now, even in the 21st century. Some of them were recovered, but um, uh, one of her most wonderful pieces, The Death of Cleopatra, um, was um recovered by some boy scouts um and uh, um and it had been um uh, in a, on a race course um somewhere and the the race um uh, the racehorse owner had owned a horse called um cleopatra and he he purchased um this um uh, um statue um to you know sort of commemorate um uh, cleopatra the horse's um death so you know sort of these um these 
wonderful works of art have just been discarded and then, you know, sort of um, luckily um, recovered. Um, but so much of her work is still um, still missing. Um, and, uh, and really, we don't... Um, until very recently, we we didn't um, we didn't know you know sort of what had happened to her after um, uh, um, after she left Rome uh, and uh, and she ends up in um, London in England um, and um, and it was only you know through much much you know sort of research from a, a fellow historian that they found you know her death certificate um, but um, nobody knew for a very long time what had happened to her so those kinds of you know sort of you could never imagine not knowing you know sort of how Frederick Douglass died or Martin Luther King or um, so you know sort of uh, I'm thinking about the, the comparisons um, uh, uh, between um, black female intellectuals and black male intellectuals it, it's really very interesting in you know, thinking about charting one black female intellectual's life story, such as Edmonia Lewis's. I know. I mean, everything that you just said a few moments ago, it's so mind-boggling when you think of the things that she went through and the lack of support that she had, you know, to be accused and then beaten up in a field. And then, you know, where you think she would be able to get assistance, she's not. And she does, you know, travel to Rome, uh, and she sets up life there, but it's still not a lot enough, um, you know. And she does; she creates these masterpieces. And I think for, you know, especially with historians, she's also one of those. In many ways, some know of her, but she's almost like a forgotten figure when you think yeah. about it. Yeah, and I was I was really interested to um, uh, um, to to think about you know sort of. There is a history of um, a visual art that looks at, you know, Edmonia Lewis, um, and uh, um, um, but there's nothing that places her within intellectual histories. Um, there is nothing. So you know, sort of, uh, so really thinking, well, why? I mean, she created these just beautiful, beautiful um, uh, sculptures, but also they said something um, quite, you know, sort of significant. Um, in you know sort of um, uh, in in their making um, but you know sort of she's never been considered um, in the context of an intellectual um, which um, really just floored me to be honest and it's so and that's true because you know and she was also with a group of known black intellectuals also in Rome because you know um, Sarah Parker Remont she goes there as well and it's she has this like there's this community, yet she's almost this invisible figure that's there. Yeah, no, absolutely. But and I also think because she lived such a private life, um, right? Um, so um, uh, her um, there's a couple of images that exist of her. She's um, she's very um, uh, um, uh, you know sort of. Um, uh, masculine in the way she presents herself um, and there are you know sort of rumors abound of you know sort of um, her sexuality you know because she was never married and um, and so um, so I think she just lived a closed off life but she learned that resilience um, from a right. very early age um, and uh, um, and she decided that she didn't really need um, uh, um, 
anyone to you know sort of tell her what to do um she would just plow her own furrow and um and she certainly did um and it's proved with um the work that that has been recovered and does still you know sort of uh, um we are we are aware of that you know sort of um uh it's uh, it's there her work is testimony to how you know sort of intellectual she really was right i definitely agree with that now you also mentioned in early in the conversation these ideas and you talked about it you learned a lot about black nationalism mm-hmm. there were two interesting terms that came up home place and in-betweenness can you kind of explain what those mean for yes. listeners so um as um Lots and lots of um, uh, um, uh, people will already know. Um, I owe the concept of home place to um, the wonderful black feminist theorist Bell Hooks. Um, and uh, um, so, home place. What she means by this is a place where, and wherever that may be. So, um, for Hooks, it was her grandmother's house where um, she was required to pass um, a poor white neighbourhood to get to her grandma's house. And so, you can imagine, you know, sort of uh, um, the the kind of um, the strange, you know, sort of looks that the kind of maybe the catcalling, the kind of racial um, uh, um, discrimination that has was was coming at her. As she passed through this and also you know not even that the kind of you know sort of the the feeling of hostility um that um uh, that must have enveloped her as she she walked through these kind of um spaces and places that weren't hers as such um and so and she gets to her grandma's house um and um and every time she she gets to her grandma's house um she um uh, she calls this her the home place. So it's a place whereby it's a female centric creation and a space where um, um, and black women have constructed this. And they've constructed this ideal of home as a community of kind of uh, um, uh, resistance. Um, and it's safe, it's secure, um, uh, um, it's, it's what one should feel when one is at home and I've always been um a little bit obsessed with the idea of home and what it means with um uh, with my um second book on Sarah Hicks Williams um she was she was desperate to find you know where she belonged um uh, um and she never felt at home uh at Ben's uh Ben Williams's uh, um uh um plantation despite the fact that you know sort of it was her home and and she says for many years afterwards you know I was a stranger in a strange place um and um and I think you hear that kind of refrain quite a lot through you know sort of several of, of the archives that um, one can look at um and so um and because um I'm a historian of, of the family as well um particularly the enslaved family this notion of a home place was really interesting to me but particularly in the context of um black nationalism so and so these women didn't um uh, um didn't think about um black nationalism in a in a context of um um complete separation from uh the united states or you know sort of creating a kind of african um homeland etc um they were more concerned with thinking about um uh safety and security 
in a world dominated by racial violence against them. So and whether these women who I include in, in the chapter on um, black nationalism, whether they advocated for remaining in the United States, and many of them did, um, uh, um, Maria um, Stewart, um, Maria W. Stewart, um, adamantly argues that she's American born. Why would she, you know, sort of, uh, why would she want to advocate, you know, sort of leaving? And, and it's very much the, the same as, you know, sort of uh, Frederick Douglass, right? Um, whereas um, others like um, Harriet Tubman and Marianne Shakeri, um, they advocate um, uh, um, removing themselves elsewhere to create that home place, to create that space um, in a different land whereby they do feel safe um, and they do feel secure. Now, of course, both Marianne Shakeri and Harriet Tubman end up moving back to the United States. Um, uh, um, uh, sort of uh, Tubman um, sort of off and on um, uh, throughout sort of um the, um, in the years leading up to the Civil War, and then um, eventually she settles back in the United States. Um, and then Mary Asha Carey, um, uh, she, um, uh, she helps Martin Delaney raise um, troops for the Civil War, and then, um, and then eventually settles back in the US. So, you know, sort of, there's a kind of uh, um, temporary, uh, temporary kind of notion around you know sort of where your home place is um and it can change depending on you know context and, and circumstance um so um so i think you know this notion of home place is is was ideal for me um because i i found it as i said you know sort of this was the hardest chapter to to write and and i and i really struggled with it but settling into this notion of of home place meant that these kind of ideas around, you know, sort of whether you're a separatist or an integrationist or, you know, sort of somewhere in between, these were kind of redundant because um, in the, the context of um, a sort of pre-Civil War um, uh, um, ideas um, and, you know, sort of um, the, the black community, it was about, you know, sort of um, uh, thinking about where you might be safest. Um, so, you know, sort of this, this idea of a, of a home place was, was particularly um, relevant for me. And then um, uh, in between this, <laughs> so this is a term uh, borrowed from historian uh, Dan J. Broad, um, and um, he wrote this brilliant piece um, uh, about Harriet Tubman, and he thinks about Harriet Tubman's transnationality, so moving between zones of British and American identity as required. So Tubman um, uh, um, eventually um, uh, goes to um, Canada. She um, that's her, you know, sort of uh, um, Canada um, has um, outlawed slavery in the early 1830s. Um, and she says, you know, sort of, I couldn't trust Uncle Sam to look after my people. So, you know, sort of, we, we have to come where slavery is no more. Um, not to say that, you know, sort of there were no racial um, uh, prejudices or, or racism or hostility in Canada. Um, there certainly was. Um, but, um, but, Tubman um, sees Canada 
um, and the place um, where she settles in Canada as um, as as her home place. Um, but thinking about this kind of in betweenness, um, this notion of Tubman, and I think maybe others. I mean, we just talked about Edmonia Lewis, and you know, sort of Lewis goes from uh, the United States um, to Rome then to London, you know, sort of, there's, you know, sort of an in-betweenness there as well, but also with her identity as well, you know, sort of uh, um, thinking about um, uh, the, the kind of ambiguities in her in her identity um, is, is really interesting to think about that in-betweenness. Um, but with Tubman, it was about negotiating overlapping worlds, so the United States, Canada, Great Britain, and the African diaspora. Um, not only physically, you know, sort of moving um, between the United States and Canada as she helped um, uh, um, enslaved peoples move from slavery to freedom, uh, um, uh, but, you know, sort of culturally as well. So she's inhabiting different kind of cultural zones. Um, And Broad argues that it's vital to position Tubman in that kind of transnational context. So moving away from a more kind of national understanding that historians have previously located her in, and I think that's really quite true. So Tubman um, is, you know, sort of, uh, um, aside from Sojourner Truth, Harriet Tubman is the name that, you know, sort of we think of when we think about, you know, sort of um, uh, um, black black females who, you know, sort of took on... um, uh, slavery and you know sort of uh, um, fought for um, uh, abolition so um, so I think um, so um, so I think it, it's very much the United States that we locate um, Harriet Tubman in but you know she um, she absolutely adored um, Queen uh, Victoria I mean sort of she um, legend has it that she asked to be buried with a medallion of, of, of Queen Victoria um, uh, um, when she died. So, you know, sort of um, even though, um, and because Queen Victoria represented um, female leadership um, and you know, sort of uh, this idea of Queen Victoria was um, the, um, uh, the, the monarch who had, you know, given her people freedom, right? So given um, Harriet Tubman's people freedom. Um, so, um, so I think um, uh, this the argument's really neat, um, and I I really wanted to kind of you know sort of give it more kind of airtime I suppose um, because the the article was published in a in a, a, a journal that was dedicated it was a special issue dedicated to um, uh, Tubman, um, and uh, I w- really wanted to you know sort of put that out there and say yeah. Actually, this is a really interesting uh, um, point that's perhaps been, you know, overlooked slightly. So, among those who are not um, Tubman scholars, so, um, so yeah, um, it's uh, um, it, it was a, a really interesting uh, concept to me, and uh, I thought, well, actually, I could use that. You did, and you did very well in the book. <laughs> I have to say, both actually, your own concept of home place, and in between in betweenness, they worked so well together within that chapter um, that you got a greater sense of who these women are and the importance of nationalism to them, or in the case of Tubman, transnationalism and how that helped shape her identity during that period. 
there's one thing that I definitely want to get to, and this kind of brings in another Lewis, per se, um, education. And so I wanted to ask you a bit about how important was racial uplift through education for Black women intellectuals during this period? I think absolutely vital. Um, um, we see messages of racial uplift with every one of these women. Um, from Maria W. Stewart's public lectures in Boston in the early 1830s um, to um, the letters published in the Christian Recorder written by black women, and not just for black women, but for the black community. To the novels serialized in black print, um, so in novel, uh, novel, novels published in um, the Christian Recorder, such as um, Julia C. Collins's Curse of Caste um, uh, um, and Francis um, uh, E. Watkins Harper publishes um, a, a couple, actually, um, and, um, and to the artwork produced um, by Powers and um, uh, and uh, um, Ammonia Lewis. Um, and of course, you know, sort of we see, so Julia C. Collins, um, published in the recorder as an essayist, um, uh, Edmonia Highgate, also published in the recorder as an essayist. Um, and then um, later, um, Julia C. Collins is, uh, serializes uh, um, uh, um, The Curse of Cast. Um, but they're both teachers, they're both school teachers. Um, and uh, um, and um, tragically, Collins um, dies before the Curse of Cast um, reaches its finale. Um, and she, she lay undiscovered in the archives for um, several uh, years, actually. Um, and, uh, um, uh, but I think um, through their kind of, um, so lit like in the classroom, uh, um, whether, you know, sort of, in, and Collins was um, a teacher, um, I think in um, Pennsylvania, um, and, um, and through, you know, her classroom lessons, she writes, she's, she's an essayist, and she writes about, you know, being a teacher, and, you know, the, the pitfalls of being a teacher, and, you know, sort of the joy of, of, of ch hearing children learn their lessons, etc. Um, and um, in the same way that Edmonia um, Highgate, um, who also dies um, tragically early um, through a um, botched abortion, um, which we can talk about um, a little later if you want. But um, she um, just devotes her life to teaching. Um, she She's a teacher before um, the um, uh, Civil War ends. She then... Um, she then goes and teaches in Freedman schools um, in... Um, Virginia and um, Mississippi, and then uh, I think it, yeah, um, she ends up in um, Louisiana, um, and uh, um, and she because of the, the stress of, of teaching, she suffers a, a nervous breakdown. She has to be you know taken home, um, but you know sort of um, the um, and then she resumes um, teaching once she's better. But the, this is a kind of it's not a. A, a life that you know sort of uh, they it's not a profession they've just chosen because you know it's a job that you know, would earn the money it's you know sort of a profession that they love and they're dedicated to in the same way maria w stewart um 
uh, learns, um, uh, um, takes a teaching qualification and becomes a teacher after um, she's finished lecturing in um, uh, um, Boston in the um, early 1830s. Um, and, you know, sort of people write about her, um, you know, sort of going through the streets, um, looking for, you know, sort of children who were meant to be in a class that were too poor to attend and, you know, sort of, uh, and, you know, sort of saying, I'll teach them for free. And, and this is their life's work. Um, and, um, uh, but, um, but even if, um, even if the black female intellectuals that I'm writing about weren't teachers, um, it's so interesting. This notion of racial uplift is just so imperative to, um, to everything they write, to everything that they create, to everything that, um, uh, um, that they're, you know, sort of producing. Um, and, um, and I think, um, this, this idea of um, leaving a legacy um, is something that's particularly important to um, Edmonia Highgate. And she, she talks about it several times in several of her essays um, about, you know, sort of what will you leave? What will you leave for future generations? Um, future generations need role models. Future generations need um, uh, um, people to aspire to. So what, what will you what will you leave? And um, and it's the same with Maria W. Stewart. She she calls on uh, on um, on women um, from uh, African de- um, descent um, and says, you know, sort of awaken, arise, you know, sort of uh, wake up. Um, we need um, future generations to you know sort of emulate what what we have you know sort of laid down here so you know sort of get busy um and uh, um, and uh, it's uh, um it was just you know sort of one thread um that i could see throughout all of the women i looked at um this notion of, of racial uplift and it's something that you know sort of i'd assumed um when i started the the project um that it was something that was um particular to sort of the post um, sort of reconstruction period, the later period, sort of in the 1880s, 1890s through to um, uh, the 20th century. But actually, um, I was just amazed and delighted to, um, to realise that actually um, this was something that um, women were sort of writing about and uh, um, uh, espousing um, several years before um, the, the civil war had even ended. I agree. I mean, as I'm thinking about here and, you know, um, Mariah Stewart, you know, she's also one of those figures who's often overlooked, but, you know, her speeches were phenomenal. I mean, she, you know, in many ways, she spoke about the issues that were facing the Black community, but also, you know, as you were saying, this notion of legacy, and, you know, she didn't speak to just black men. She was also speaking to black women, you know, that there's that there's so much that you can do and how important it is and how important education is and how important it is for you to focus on the right things versus the wrong things. Absolutely. She, she advocates setting up a school for black girls so they can learn um, finance and, you know, sort of, and um, maths and you know, arithmetic, obviously. Um, and, you know, sort of, and then they can, you know, sort of take those skills and go and do stuff. And she was so conscious um, that um, 
that actually the black um, the black race should prove themselves as equal to to white people to white to the white race, um, and um, and I think Maria Stewart she kind of um, she's berated an awful lot for this that actually she um, uh, she should be um, I've you know sort of seen in passing that. Um, uh, the idea that you know so well, you know why was she so critical of, of black people but you know sort of she was um it was the context of you know sort of the 19th century um that was you know, partially to blame but um but i think um this was you know sort of one way in which um she could um she could sort of get her message across that actually we are just as good as as, as white people but we need to prove it um, and this was exhausting um, for not just Maria Stewart, but you know, sort of uh, um, other um, other women that, that feature in this book. But um, she, um, as I say, I mean, she became a teacher after she finished her public um, uh, um, performances uh, in Boston, and um, and certainly, um, uh, um, uh, I imagine she um, she did she did that kind of same. Uh, um, mentality of, of racial uplift in, in her, her lessons there. I agree. I mean, her life is one in which, you know, as all the women in your book, their lives are something where you can see where they may have stopped engaging in one form of intellectualism, but they shifted to another um, throughout their lives. So I wanted to ask you, was there anything that surprised you about these women? <laughs> so um I learned so much more than I ever thought imaginable um when I sort of started on this um journey. I think um it didn't surprise me, but at times I felt um I guess overwhelmed. Um I lived with these women. Um my husband and my daughter also lived with these women um for several years. Um but um their, their kind of courage and tenacity were, were really awe-inspiring. Um, but I also learned the cost of that intellectual labour um, for these women. And I think perhaps I'd never really considered them as anything more than, than them in their roles as, I don't know, abolitionists or social reformers or fugitives from slavery. I guess I had a little bit of a two-dimensional sort of... Um, idea of of what they were and what they represented um but reading the letters reading you know sort of um uh, um around these women um and from all the brilliant brilliant historians who have done uh, um work on these women already um that you know sort of they became much more three-dimensional um and much more human um uh so so yeah and i think um I think that was one of the things that, that kind of surprised me in terms of my research process. Um, one other thing that I really, I'm a bit of a, a kind of, um, I always think that being a historian is a bit like being a detective. Um, so you're piecing together, you know, sort of the jigsaw and, um, uh, and such like. Um, and um, I love gossip and I love, I'm a bit nosy. And uh, um and I th- and what really kind of not amused me, but you know, sort of got me thinking, um, was the levels of rivalry within and between um, social reform movements was really intriguing. Um, so um, particularly, um, so there's 
there's one kind of, you know, sort of episode, well, several actually, um, with Marianne Shakeri um, and Henry Bibb, who also um, flees to Canada. Um, and he he marries um, in Canada um, uh, Mary Bibb, also called Mary, which was difficult for the, for the writing to distinguish between Shakeri and Mary Bibb. Um, but um, they play out their... Um, uh, you know, sort of disagreements, and actually, you know, sort of real resentful by the end. Um, they play play this resentment out in their respective newspapers. So Bibb owns the Voice of the Fugitive. He publishes the Voice of the Fugitive in Canada, um, and Marianne Shakeri, uh, first um, uh, female um, uh, a black newspaper editor um, in North America, she um, uh, she sets up the Provincial Freeman uh, under. And, uh, and so no one knows she's the editor um, until she just gets really miffed at the fact that um, someone writes to her and it's published in the paper and he assumes that she's a, a man and she says, actually, um, <laughs> you will call me by um, Mrs. Um, Mary Ansha Carey. Um, so, um, so so they, they play out their resentments um, in... Um, uh, um, in these uh, in these respective newspapers, but also um, Shakeri sends letters to um, the um, the American Missionary Association, particularly George Whipple, Reverend George Whipple, and um, she accuses Mary Bibb of all sorts of things, like she's drug taking and she's um, uh, um, she's you know a wanton woman, and she's turned Henry Bibb um, into you know sort of uh, the very sort of uh, um, uh, um, uh, sort of uh, uh, not a non-respectable, you know, sort of a, a man, a representation of a man, um, and um, and it's just, you know, sort of <laughs> revealed to me, you know, sort of um, these. Um, I mean, we think about the modern press um, and the ways in which you know celebrity rivalries um, play out, but actually. It was exactly the same in the 19th century in these newspapers. Um, and while, you know, sort of these um, uh, newspapers were created to, um, uh, to, for, for a moral worth, for, for a moral cause, um, that actually, you know, sort of there are still, you know, sort of um, jealousies and rivalries and, um, and, um, and bitterness um, going on. Um, but... Um, uh, I think Martin Delaney describes um, Mary and Shad at that point uh, um, as as a oh, it's just a, a peculiar woman or an eccentric woman, um, and but he doesn't ever divulge what these eccentricities were. Um, so I mean, we can only assume that um, she wasn't womanly enough, so that she wasn't demure, she wasn't polite, she wasn't respectable, um, that actually she did have a voice and she used it um, in, you know, lecture halls, in, um, uh, she was um, a very prominent um, campaigner against the um, colonisation society um, back to um, places like Liberia um, and Sierra Leone, um, along with her father, um, Abraham. So, I mean, she was, um, she was a force to be reckoned with. Um, so, um, so I, I, I sort of think um, uh, that I was just, you know, sort of, I was, I would love to do something more on on Shakeri because I think there's um, there's only one um, uh, biography that exists um, by Jane Rhodes, and I think uh, you know she deserves a little bit more um, than um, 
than than what's been been written. Um, so um, so yes, yeah, surprising um, on several levels. But just finally, um, the um, I think the one thing that you know sort of struck me is how much sadness um, beset these women's lives. Just in terms of being left widows at a young age or died themselves at, you know, sort of before their time, really. So we talk, I talked about Julia C. Collins um, and Edmonia Highgate um, uh, earlier on. So, um, but then, you know, sort of how that, you know, sort of developed them in character. Um, so, you know, particularly being a widow left at a very early age and um, sort of widows um, and, you uh, um, but also because of that, they're left in poverty. Um, so um, Harriet Tubman um, never got the, you know, sort of um, recompense um, she um, she was entitled to for serving uh, as a um, as a spy and scout in the um, uh, um, Civil War for the Union um, and a nurse after that. Um, uh, um, Maria W. Stewart was. Um, never ever received a penny um, of her um, war widow's pension and also her husband um, uh, James uh, um, Stewart um, he he was quite well off um, and he died um, soon after they got married um, and um, her white trustees made off with the will and she never saw the will um, and uh, it was only revealed through a mutual friend years later. A mutual friend um, went and uh, um, uh, s- sort of uh, um, dug up um, the story um, and uh, and the you know sort of uh, um, the, the the atrocity, the injustice of 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 what these white trustees had done. Um, and so um, she was she lived in poverty most of her life. Um, so um, so yeah, I think you know sort of uh, they were sort of amazing or inspiring um, women, but they were also um, they were you know sort of just as fragile as as you or me. And I think writing this during the pandemic as well really helped me to think about you know sort of how frail the human condition is um, and how. Um, how we are, you know, sort of something can happen and it can just bowl us over um, and it might not be of our own making at all. Um, and we have to just kind of um, respond to um, uh, various instances in our life in ways that, you know, sort of um, we perhaps wouldn't wouldn't choose to, but we have to. Um, and so, um, I mean, my, my issue was homeschooling, but, you know, sort of uh, um, the, um, the women that featured in this book you know sort of uh, they fought battles that I could only ever you know sort of have nightmares about um so um so I think you know sort of uh, um in a sense it may sort of show me up for you know sort of what a kind of um uh, um what this has taught me as an historian rather than you know sort of what has surprised you about these women um but um but I think um but I think you know just their um, uh, their tenacity in terms of uh, um, their ability to just keep going. Right, I agree, and the toll that it took on them to do that. You know, that's something that you 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 sometimes you miss that as you're so focused on how much they are seeking to accomplish, but the physical, emotional, and mental strain that they undertook for all of this, and 
they were human. You know, there are these figures who are so iconic, yeah, and who've become, some of them have, but they were human. And, you know, the struggles that they faced, as you said, it's something that we can't even imagine, you know, on a daily basis, what they endured and had to endure. Um, But they were working towards change and to create a better society um, for others. Yeah, and I think, you know, sort of, um, I mean, that shines through in, you know, sort of everything, um, uh, that kind of, you know, sort of, uh, and, and that's what I mean by tenacity. They're, you know, sort of, um, they're struggling with their own health. They're struggling, you know, sort of um, uh, making ends meet, um, perhaps, you know, sort of having to um, uh, write their novels in the evening when other people are engaged in leisure, you know, sort of, uh, and uh, um uh, William still writes a, a letter to one of the um, the Underground Railroad uh, um, uh, um, uh, um, abolitionist, and he writes uh, a letter to one of the the newspaper editors and says, you know, sort of uh, most uh, most women are, are, are writing their their novels in their le- in their you know sort of leisure time, whereas you know sort of. Um, uh, um, Frances uh, Harper is, you know, writing her novels in the evening when the, you know, sort of uh, when the day's work is done, and um, and so thinking about, you know, sort of, they must have been so tired. <laughs> it just, I mean, sort of, with all the kind of mental, physical, um, uh, and emotional um, uh, um, energy it took um, to manage their lives in in ways that I cannot even imagine. I agree. I definitely agree with that. So what would you want readers to take away from the book? Oh, so um, I really think I write for um, uh, um, a kind of, uh, I write in a way that I hope is um, is really accessible. Um, and um, I'm not um, one for like high theory. Um, uh, and um, And I think my main ambition with the book is that people enjoy reading about these women and that they also consider them and the work they did as part of the intellectual labor that typically men have gained credit for, whether it be white men or or black men, uh, um, in terms of the histories of intellectualism, particularly in the 19th century. Um, I also hope that the readers see these women's lives as lessons in courage and tenacity. Um, And I think if I can, you know, sort of motivate, I mean, like, this is a grand claim, I suppose, but if people go away from this book after reading it and um, think I might myself be a little bit bolder or pursue an ambition, however small or seemingly small it is, um, that, you know, I didn't think I could, um, then, you know, sort of uh, we're on to to a winner, right? Um, So... And I'm hopeful that it opens up new avenues of research into the lives of of women of colour and their intellectual labours, especially in the 19th century. Um, So I mentioned about Marianne Shakeri only having uh, um, uh, um, one one biographer um, have written about her. So, you know, sort of, um, so thinking about opening up avenues um, for um, for other researchers, in the United States, so thinking about women, black women in the United States, um, but also the kind of black diaspora more widely. So thinking about what will 
what were black women doing in the 19th century in the UK or you know sort of Europe or um so um so yeah I think um there's there's lots of things um I'd want readers to take away from it but mostly just enjoying it enjoying you know sort of I I, I loved writing about these women um and you know sort of um and I I'm hoping that um that anybody who reads reads this book will really love reading about them too I have to ask you, um, Professor Fraser, what are you working on next? <laughs> this the you know rabbit in headlights moment, isn't it? Um, <laughs> so, um, so I um, I think, um, and it's going to be a little bit more difficult. Well, you know, sort of, uh, it took me a while to you know sort of write this, but. Um, I think the next research project um, go will go back. I mean, it will go back to my concerns with um, uh, enslaved families um, and networks, but particularly focusing on enslaved girlhood and specifically the subjective experiences of enslaved girls as they entered their teenage years. So entering into um, what might be called like womanhood, um, and what I want to do because. Most um, histories of, of, of slavery and the um, enslaved experience um, focus on what was done to enslaved women. And I want to focus on, um, so by that I mean um, what was done to them by enslavers and systems of white privilege and um, control. Um, but what I will want to focus on is um, what were their networks of support during that you know, sort of time? Uh, of coming of age um so female kin and friendships um their experience of coming of age um, and focusing on growing up girl in the antebellum south when you know sort of um their their girlhood was hardly it was a fleeting moment um if we compare this to you know sort of um white middle-class girls coming of age and so you know sort of the the counterpoint of um the um enslavers um young daughters um so so thinking about um uh onset of menstruation body changes sexual awakenings that sort of thing and my early ideas are based around the question harriet jacobs poses in her narrative concerning why does the slave ever love so I've worked out that Harriet was around 14 years old when she fell in love for the first time, possibly the only time, um, with a young coloured carpenter um, who, and um, I'm quoting here, who she loved with all the ardour of a young girl's first love. Um, this, I mean, Harriet poses a really singularly unique framing question that, to my knowledge, historians of the American South have never really explored in the context of a young girl's first love. Whether, or, whether enslaved or not, young Southern women loved romantically, right? How could it be otherwise in a broader cultural context that celebrated spousal relationships as being based on mutual consent, intimacy and attraction? And this is where notions of enslaved courtship started and, and the first book um, in 2007. So I'm kind of going back to, to my roots. Um, yet I think with young enslaved um, girls or women, um, they were rarely, if ever, allowed to demonstrate and act upon their feelings owing to legal and cultural sanctions that denied their very personhood, right? So the question really hinges on the key element of enslaved girls' inability um, to develop emotionally and, and, and you know, sort of uh, um, cyclically, owing to the larger forces of white power and the denial of humanity for enslaved um, free-coloured people living in 
in that era. So, um, so yeah, but this notion of why does the slave ever love, um, you know, sort of uh, Harriet Jacobs is, you know, sort of, she's 14. So this is her coming of age, right? Um, but um, to my knowledge, at least, and, you know, sort of, um, someone please um tell me i'm wrong um but um historians have not focused on that as a kind of singular um a quote that could tell us so much more about you know sort of young uh enslaved women's lives uh, um but subjectively rather than what was done to them or what they did um to themselves you know friendship um support networks um etc so um so yeah it's a it's a big feat i think and it's quite ambitious at the moment um, but i'm sure my um it will be you know sort of honed in as as i as i develop it um so uh, so yes that's the plan it sounds very very fascinating and that is one of those questions that you know one that should be addressed because i'm thinking about it i'm working with my dissertation on jacob's narrative but in a different capacity you know it's that girlhood and the things that she says about that coming of age moment Mm. for young enslaved women and what that really means for them and as you say she is 14 when she falls in love but yet if you think about her master or well technically not her master but (laughs) you know he's difficult It is, but he's yet, if you think about it, you know, today he would be termed a pedophile for what he is doing to her Um, because she is a child. She's, she's at that cusp there, you know, and yet it's okay. Yeah. Well, you know, sort of, uh, um, uh, I was shocked to learn that, you know, sort of uh, in the course of the preliminary reading that, you know, sort of Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings. So Hemings was about 14 when, you know, sort of, hmm. So, you know, sort of, and and sort of various authors have said, well, you know, sort of historians have said, well, you know, sort of, but this was, you know, sort of not unacceptable, you know, in this period. But, you know, sort of um, now in the context of it's horrifying to think of, you know, sort of um, a 14 year old girl being. But that said, um, uh, there's an argument there around enslaved girls and um uh, sexuality and then being uh, seen um, uh, in um, in ways that you know sort of are much more sexualized um, than you know their white um, uh, um, peers. So you know sort of um, uh, there's a whole other kind of um, literature there, um, but um, it's it's so interesting. So um, so yeah, I'm hoping to do that justice. I am looking forward to that. I'll be looking. Very much forward to your next project. And I want to say thank you so much for joining me today. It has been a pleasure. And I want to say, readers, please go out and pick up a copy of um, Born to Bloom Unseen because it is it is accessible. It is for academics and it's for non-academics. It is you get a chance to learn about these amazing women and who Professor has Professor Frazier has said who encapsulated resilience, tenacity, and who face challenges that many of us can't even imagine right now. And the book, it is on sale now, so I implore you to go out and pick up a copy and read this book. You will not regret it. Thank you again, Professor Frazier, for joining me today.
thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure just to um, talk um, quite, you know, sort of at length about um, my book. Um, so, so thank you very much.